I am fearful of churches becoming so seeker-sensitive we become believer-worthless. We need to convey all of the counsel of God, and yes, sometimes that will not be popular, but what's worse, someone getting offended that they heard a message on abortion that they didn't like, or that person having an abortion because we never preached on it? Hey, well, welcome back to the Decision Point podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hobson. Uh, with Decision Point, where our mission is to proclaim the gospel to the next generation until every student has heard. And on this show, we are helping students stand for Christ, live for Christ, and witness for Christ, and endure hardship for his name because we believe he's worth it. And we've got a, a, a conviction that today we want to be a generation of people that are standing for Christ uh, as people who are committed to the truth of God's word, who are not ashamed of God's testimony, and will not bow down to the idols of today. Today, we're going to be talking about what does it mean to stand for Christ uh, in the middle of a culture that has a great idol, and it's the idol of death. And with us in the studio today is Scott Klusendorf, who's president of Life Training Institute and a world-renowned apologist for life. Scott, thanks so much for being with us today. Mark, it's a pleasure. You know, Scott, as I was reading uh, the Bible this week, I've been working my way through Isaiah and uh, a passage jumped out at me that I just never actually thought about relative to our topic today. Uh, you're probably already thinking of which one it is, but Isaiah 28, where God tells the people that they have actually made a covenant with death. Could you yeah. just talk to us today about what is the culture of death that young people today find themselves immersed in and they may not even know it? The culture of death is this, that human life has no intrinsic value, only functional value. And so our culture shouts at us, for example, that you're not really a person until you have self-awareness or have the ability to feel pain or interact with your environment. And the culture of death says that there's two classes of human beings, a class of human persons over here that we can't kill and a class of human beings over here that aren't persons that we can kill. And it's embraced this worldview known as body-self-dualism. Sorry for getting very complex <laughs> yeah, but, right out of the gate. Hang but, with us, folks. <laughs> yeah, but before your listeners gloss over and go into coma land and become non-persons, let me explain <laughs> what I mean by this. The culture is telling us that the real you, Mark, has nothing to do with your body. The real you is your cognitive self, your thoughts, your desires, your aims. And therefore, you could say to me, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, and I ought to believe you, according to the culture. By that same logic, we say that until you have consciousness, until you have self-awareness over time, or the ability to feel pain or enjoy sensations, there's no you there. So if we have an abortion when you're an embryo, there isn't a human person that's killed. There's only a body that's removed, but no person has died. And that's the culture of death, this view that not all humans have an equal right to life that's fundamental. So why do you think it's so important? You travel the country, probably the world, at training, I think, more young people on how to be passionate advocates for life than anybody out there. Why do you think it's so important that you're making this your life mission to train Christian young people to be advocates for life? Because right now where we're at, in the 21st century, the great battle is not over what is God, it's over what is man. In other words, what is our nature as human beings? Is human nature fixed or are we free to alter it and morph into anything we want if we can produce the technology to do it? And what gives humans value in the first place? And students are confused on these questions. And if our churches aren't giving a very biblically grounded philosophical 
view of what makes us valuable in the first place. Students are going to be lost on questions of identity and what their role is in society and how they relate to one another in brotherly love and as Christians. So um, you you talked one time and I heard you talk about uh, how, are a lot of Christian young people today being trained and equipped in how to be advocates for life? Not as much as we'd like to see. In fact, the sad thing is, if you look at all of the major Christian colleges, can you name one that has a program, a major, aimed at equipping undergrads to take careers as full-time pro-life ambassadors? There isn't one. There's a certificate program at one school I can think of, and I'm grateful for that. But outside of that, we have no specific professional training aimed at getting our people in the field full-time as professional advocates for life. You uh, teach at another amazing ministry, Summit Ministries, every summer. Yeah. I heard you say that you ask students every summer how often, how many of them have actually heard training. Remind me, what's the percentage that well, say, here's yes, the, I've received? Here's what's really sad, Mark. And you're right. Summit Ministries, which get students from some of the finest churches in America who send their kids to Summit to learn how to defend a biblical worldview in the course of a two-week training program. And it's the finest training program and worldview out there. Nothing beats it. And you teach there almost every year, right? I teach pretty much every session every year. And what I've done for the last several years, I'd say going back at least eight years now, I ask students a survey question. How many of you before coming to Summit at your church heard a presentation aimed at equipping you to engage friends with a pro-life argument. How many of you have gotten a presentation on that? Out of 200 students present per session, we might get eight that raise their hands. And then if I refine it further and say, how many of you heard a pro-life presentation aimed at helping you convince non-Christian friends that the pro-life position is true, the numbers drop even more. So we're clearly not overdoing it as the church in America. We're not at all. Talk to us about the hostility that students are facing in public schools. I mean, they're, what are some of the objections that they're encountering, and why do we need to equip them to actually know how to defend the faith and then actually advance the gospel relative to the issue of life? The number one thing our students are getting hit with right now, and I'm going to use a big term, but I'm going to define it. So listeners, hang with us. We're going to get this clear. It's a dangerous doctrine called standpoint epistemology, and what it basically says is you have no right to make a moral claim unless you're a victim of a certain victim class who's experienced a certain thing. Otherwise, you have nothing to say. Shut up. And so Christian students are being silenced, not in the name of, hey, your argument's no good. They're being silenced in the name of you have no authority to speak because you don't have standing. So, for example, a Christian pro-life student at a high school recently contacted me and said my uh, political science teacher wanted to have a class discussion on abortion, but he looked at me and three other white students in the class and said, you don't get to speak. Only these minority female students get to speak because they have standing. You're part of the oppressor group. They're oppressed. Therefore, you shut up and listen to them. And when the the oppressed students, so to speak, made their argument, which was so bad and so vacuous, and the other students tried to correct them with loving reason. I mean, they were gentle about it, but they tried to correct them. The teacher shut it down, not because the arguments were bad, but because these students over here were the only ones determined to have standing. 
So um, help us think more about this in an evangelistic context. So we have students across America in our ministry that are embracing the mission to give every student at their school the chance to hear the gospel before they graduate. They're learning how to share the gospel one-on-one, how to give God's word on a massive scale at their campus, how to teach God's word. Uh, They're leading outreach weeks where they're bringing in guest speakers and sharing the gospel uh, multiple days in a row with a goal of helping every student hear about Jesus that week, let alone everything else that they're doing on campus. In that kind of a evangelistic context, help our students think about why they should actually want to get training that we're going to even be talking about later in this episode to also be advocates for life and why you think this issue connects so well with evangelism and the Great Commission. Well, the number one reason I tell students to get pro-life training is often there are obstacles in the path of people seriously considering Christian truth claims. And so they think, well, your view of faith is just a blind leap in the dark, and why would I want to believe something there's no evidence for? Now, that's a faulty view of faith. You and I don't believe that's what faith means, but that's what the secular culture thinks it means. Christians, rather, hold to a belief that faith is trust based on evidence. And if you can show that the Christian worldview makes sense on a current cultural issue like abortion or maybe the definition of marriage or gender roles, things like that, if you can show that the Christian worldview speaks intelligently to those issues at a worldview level, you're saying to your critics, just maybe you ought to take a look at the other Christian truth claims, like, did Jesus rise from the dead? Is there a fix for my sin problem? You invite the skeptic to actually come in and see what else is being claimed, and maybe those claims aren't aren't as irrational as you think they are. So far from distracting people from the gospel, bringing up an issue like abortion invites them to take a serious look at the Christian worldview. That's amazing. So we want to um, get you to train our students who are listening to the podcast, even right now, how to make the case for life. And I hear that takes like several hours for people to do. Is that right? We'll do it in a minute. How's that? You're going to do it in a minute. One minute. Uh, A minute or less. Well, that sounds great. Tell you what, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to have Scott Klusendorf train us in how to make the case for life in under a minute. But I'm going to be timing him to see if he can really do it. If I fail, I'll agree to come on your show with no charge for the next month and a half, as many times as you want. Oh, wait, I thought that was me winning the bet. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll take a quick break. All right. Hey, it's Heather, and I have a question for you. If I asked you how many people at your school know the gospel, what would you say? For a lot of us, it's easy to think that everyone might be a Christian or has actively decided to reject Jesus, but that's just not true. Many people are open or just haven't even heard. Did you know that more than 50% of students today have never even heard John 3.16? let alone the whole gospel? I want to invite you to join students around the nation in taking the Go Witness Challenge. Initiate conversations until you get to share the gospel with five people. That's the Go Witness Challenge. Be friendly, ask them their thoughts about God, be a good listener, and ask if you can share the gospel with them, and then invite them to respond. And leave the results to God. I really believe God can use you. If your life has been changed by Jesus, you have the best news ever that people desperately need to hear. It's the gospel. And in Romans chapter 10, Paul asks the question, how are people to believe if they have never heard? How are they to hear unless someone preaches? This message you have is the best news ever. It's so worth sharing. So what are you waiting for? 
take the Go Witness Challenge today. Go to decisionpoint.org slash go witness, where you can be equipped right there with all you need to take this challenge. That's decisionpoint.org slash go witness. Hey, well, welcome back. We are so excited to be here with Scott Klusendorf. By the way, we're here on site at Colorado Christian University. Uh, we've recorded this episode in advance because Scott was kind enough to speak at our student leader conference uh, this July in 2023 when we we're recording this. Scott just finished training uh, all of our staff and students in the incredible material that he's been sharing with us today. So, Scott, thanks for being here with us at our conference. It's been a blast. Okay, Scott, you promised uh, to deliver the goods. How do you help? How do you make the case for life in a minute or less? And I've got my watch on you, so let's roll. Well, suppose your Aunt Betty says, Why are you pro life? And she hates all things Christian, and you want to give an answer that will appeal to a non Christian, but is still biblical. Here's what I would say Aunt Betty, I am pro life because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, you, we're a distinct, living, and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and develop. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. How'd I do? 45 seconds. Okay, that's rocking it. That's rocking it. But notice notice something interesting about this, Mark. I did not cite a Bible verse, but I did convey biblical truth. And that's our job as pro-life ambassadors, whether we're on a high school campus or in our local communities, is to convey God's truth in a way that people around us who might even reject religious truth claims are forced to grapple with it, but not because we've been rude, but because we've been persuasive. So help break down that 45 seconds for us, would you? Could you walk yeah. us through the just various phases of sure. that argument, starting with the major premise that you're advancing? Well, the, the argument I'm basically defending there is premise one, that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two would be abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. The conclusion, therefore, abortion's wrong. And I can defend that with science, showing that from the earliest stages of development, from the very beginning, you and I didn't evolve from embryos. We once were embryos. We are the same being today as we were then. That's the science of embryology. And this isn't a religious view. This is something you can find in embryology textbooks worldwide. We then argue philosophically, and this is key in today's society, that though there are differences between Mark the embryo and Mark the adult, those differences are not morally relevant such that we could say we could kill you then but not now. Differences of size, you were smaller then. So what? How does it follow that because smaller humans or smaller humans are less stature that we may intentionally kill them? You were less developed, but again, why does that matter? Uh, lots of people are less developed than others. Two-year-olds are less developed than 18-year-olds. We don't think the two-year-old has less of a right to life. You were in a different environment, meaning you were in the womb, now you're out, but where you are does not determine what you are. When you and I walked the 70 feet from the, the school quad a few minutes ago into this studio, we changed location. 
But if a journey of 70 feet didn't change us from one kind of thing to another, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform us from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to valuable human being that we can't? And the answer is if we weren't already human and valuable, changing your address doesn't get you there. And finally, degree of dependency. Notice we just worked through that acronym, SLED, SLED. That's a way to remember these differences. Your dependency on another human being does not give me a license to kill you. It's one thing to say I can't be forced to use my body to sustain you. It's quite another to say I can slit your throat in the name of withholding support. So the fact the unborn depends on the mother does not mean the unborn can be intentionally killed. Conjoined twins may share each other's bodily systems. It doesn't follow they can be killed because they can't live independent of each other. So talk to us about the burden of proof. You said there's some encouragement with yeah. our students this morning of who has it. What? So maybe just start at basics. What is the burden of proof and who has it and why? Why does that matter? Whenever, how should that affect how we actually speak with people about this? What often happens, and especially with Christians, they wrongly assume that they always bear the burden of proof, and that's not true. If I claim there's a pink elephant dangling above your head right now, uh, you don't bear the burden of proof. I do. I'm making the claim. If I claim there can be such a thing as a human that's not a person, the pro-lifer doesn't bear the burden of proof, the person making that claim. You would be within your rights to say, why should I believe there can be such a thing as a human that's not a person? I mean, have you ever met a human that's not a person? If you have teenagers, don't answer. But everybody else, you know what I'm talking about. The burden of proof is on the critic. If the critic says self-awareness is what makes us valuable, why should I believe that? Why is self-awareness what gives me value? And how self-aware do I have to be not to be killed? they got to answer these questions. And too often what happens with our students on high schools and in our churches, because we've not been trained to think apologetically, we assume the burden of proof and think, oh, it's on me then to out-argue that person. No, wait a minute. They're making the claim. Make them defend it. You're always within your rights to say, graciously, why should I believe a thing like that? Make them do the hard work of defending their claim. And talk to us about staying on message. I know when you when you're arguing about anything, you're trying to persuade yeah. people of anything, whether it's just the basic gospel message or or why your baseball team's better than mine or vice versa. You can go down all sorts of rabbit trails. Uh, why? How do you encourage and train people to stay on message, and why does that actually matter? Well, my baseball team is better than yours, but that's beside that's, the point. I don't need to defend it. Right, so, right, right, right. Um, how many World Series have the Cubs win won in the last hundred years? One? You know, they're on a roll. They're, they're on, on a roll. roll. They're about yeah. one a decade right now. One so, a decade. Yeah. I was going to say one a century, but moving along, um, here's the essential pro-life message. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. If I could train politicians with a seven-second soundbite to keep them on message in front of the camera, here's what it would be. I oppose abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And I would say the same thing to high school students. When you're in a class and you have just a moment to, to get your case out there, say, I oppose abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And stop right there and make others show you that it's wrong, that, that your view is wrong there. Make them do the hard work of refuting you at that point because you are prepared to defend that case with science and with philosophy like we just did a moment ago, showing that from the earliest stages, the unborn are distinct living whole human beings and showing that philosophically, there's no essential difference between Mark the adult and Mark the embryo that would justify killing you back then. You were smaller back then, less developed in a different environment, more dependent, but so what? Why do those things matter? 
that's a pretty solid case for us to make. So you just bring it home. Even if they get an objection you don't quite know what to do with, I oppose abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill humans. Always ask yourself this question. Does their objection refute my argument that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings and that abortion does that? So somebody says, well, you're a man. I mean, my snarky self wants to say, how do you know I'm a man? I mean, in today's world, how dare you judge my pronouns? But that aside, um, most of the objections you get to the pro-life view do nothing to refute the actual pro-life argument. They're completely beside the point. Suppose I hate women. Is it possible I could hate women and still make a good argument against abortion? Yes, because bad people could can make a good argument. Arguments stand or fall on their merits, not the person making them. In today's secular world, the number one thing we get is people who want to go all over the map. They don't want to judge an argument on its merits. They want to disqualify you because you allegedly have no right to speak because you're a man or you're an oppressor rather than a, than a member of an oppressed group, or they want to say you just are hateful, or that somehow your religion is what caused you to think the way you do. Hey, maybe my religion plays a role in my thinking. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm a bigot. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm an oppressor. Maybe I'm not. How does that refute my argument? Always bring it back to the argument. That's so helpful. So I know you, there's all sorts of objections that come up. One of our students asked the question even this morning, how do you respond when somebody brings up rape? and how this should affect the argument about abortion. You had such a wonderful answer. Could you share that with us now? Yeah, two types of people are going to bring up rape, inquirers and crusaders, and we need to treat them both differently. The inquirer has heard the pro-life argument. She's heard that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, that abortion does that, and she's come to the conclusion, therefore, abortion's wrong. But emotionally, she's struggling. She's thinking about her 14-year-old niece and thinking, man, if my niece got pregnant— how would I force her to bring this child to term when that child will remind her forever of what she went through? And she's struggling emotionally, not morally with the issue. I'm going to be very gentle with her. I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to call this, this person Abby, for lack of a better name. Abby, you and I agree on something. We both agree that this woman who's been sexually assaulted has suffered a terrible injustice. And you know what? I agree with you, Abby, that this child that's been conceived through assault may indeed remind the mother of that painful event. I agree with you on that. Given you and I agree on those two points, how do you think a civil society should treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? Is it okay to intentionally kill them so we can feel better? For example, if I have a toddler sitting next to me here and his father was a rapist, would it be okay to kill the toddler to relieve the mother of painful memories? And the obvious answer is no. If the unborn then are human like that toddler, should we intentionally kill them in the name of giving us psychological relief? And the answer is no. But the other person who will bring up rape is not an inquirer. They're not intellectually honest. They're just trying to make you look bad, Mark. So that person says, how can you force a woman who's been raped to bring a child to term that will remind her forever of what she went through? You're just an evil, awful person to even think that. I'm going to call his bluff. I'm going to say, okay, for the sake of argument, Bill, I'm going to agree that we allow abortion in cases of rape. Not my position, but for the sake of this discussion, let's grant that. Will you now join me in opposing all other abortions that have nothing to do with rape? Bill's answer 100% of the time will be no, and he will say women have a fundamental right to an abortion. Okay, let's unpack what that means. If a right is fundamental, you cannot infringe upon it at all. That means abortion for any reason or no reason. 
Why don't you defend that extreme position rather than hiding behind rape victims? I'm going to call him out. That's great. What are one or two of the other key objections that you think students deal with that may be difficult for them to know how to handle that would really be helpful for them to get some tips on how do you handle those? Well, let's take one that one of the students asked today right after our conference. She said, you know, I've got friends who say to me, even if the unborn are human, abortion's okay because you can't force the mother to donate her body to sustain the life of her child if the mother wishes to withhold that support. And the analogy they always bring up is, you can't force someone to give you a blood transfusion to save your life. Okay, that's true. You can't. But it doesn't follow I can slit your throat in the name of withholding support. Abortion is much more than merely withholding support. If you need a blood transfusion, and let's say I'm just a heartless person and I refuse to help you, the law may respect my autonomy, but it won't allow me to intentionally kill you in the name of withholding support. I think my colleague Frank Beckwith puts it real well. Calling abortion merely the withholding of support is kind of like suffocating someone with a pillow and calling it the withdrawing of oxygen. There's a whole lot more going on here than merely withholding support. That's so helpful. In a minute, I want to ask you to share some words of advice to any pastors that might be listening to us, and then to even some of our student leaders who are out there on the front line yeah. sharing the gospel and what you might encourage them. First, I'd just love for you to just share your heart and even the Lord's heart to anybody that might be listening to this that has in any way been involved in an abortion. What would you like to say to them? I have a one-sentence summary of of what you need to consider here. If you've had an experience with abortion, maybe a guy who encouraged a girl to abort or a woman who made this decision because you didn't think you had another way out, here's my one sentence I want to convey to you. You don't need an excuse. You need an exchange. In other words, Mm. trying to justify what you did Mm. will get you nowhere. But exchanging your sinfulness for the righteousness of Christ will get you everywhere. Because... The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus took our place, stood condemned in our place, bore the wrath of God on our behalf so that those who trust in him for salvation get the righteousness of Christ accredited to their account, and their own wickedness, their own sinfulness gets put on Christ, who bore the penalty for that, and God proved that that sacrifice was sufficient because he raised Jesus from the dead three days later. So if you're a person who thinks, I've had an abortion, I could never get forgiven of this, you're right. On your own, you can't be. You And I, I remember a woman saying to me once, I can never forgive myself for what I did. And I said to her, you're exactly right. You can't forgive yourself because you don't have authority to forgive yourself. Only God has authority to forgive sins. And God's method of salvation and forgiveness is this. You trust in his son, who is his substitute, who stood in your place as your perfect representative, and he bore the wrath of God on your behalf so you could be forgiven. That's where your authority lies. Your authority lies in the exchange of accepting Christ's righteousness for your sinfulness, not on you forgiving yourself. Well, that's the message our ministry is so passionate to proclaim, and thanks for sharing that even to people connected to this issue of abortion. What would you say to somebody who might be watching this and is actually thinking about having an abortion? I would say this to you. The pro-life movement is here to help you. And um, intentionally killing an innocent human being is wrong in and of itself, but especially so when there are resources available to help you. There are pro-life pregnancy centers, dedicated staffers who work at these centers willing to help you. I would suggest you talk to your pastor. Listen, if your pastor is gospel-centered, he's not going to be shocked that you're a sinner and you made a mistake in terms of your sexual ethics. 
uh, your pastor knows that the people in his church are sinners because he's a sinner. And uh, a gospel-driven ministry like a good church is not going to throw stones at people who sin and are pregnant out of wedlock. It's going to come alongside them and help them live God-glorifying lives in the midst of a difficult time. That's so helpful. Um, we have some wonderful churches that we partner with across the country that believe in the next generation, want to see God save the next generation, yeah. are committed to investing in their young people to help them learn how to be witnesses for Christ in their community and in their public schools. Uh, what would you say to encourage pastors that might be listening to the show? I'd say t uh, three things to pastors. Number one, when you're tempted to stay away from controversial issues because you're feel fearful of the pushback you might get, here's the question I always encourage us to consider as Christian leaders, and I put myself in this. Are any of the fears I would have about preaching on abortion worth the price of lives that could have been saved if I had been courageous? In other words, do I trust God to protect his ministry through me when I preach truth that people don't want to hear? And I think we all have to come to the point where we are willing to trust God to protect his ministry, not our ministry, it's his ministry, through us when we preach truth that there are people who don't want to hear. And by the way, none of us have it as bad as the prophet Jeremiah did. God told the prophet Jeremiah, I want you to stand in the city center and testify against child sacrifice, and no one is going to listen to you. How's that for a job right, description? Right, or Isaiah 6, here I am, send me, and yeah. you get the job description. How's oh, that for a job description? No, uh, uh, our job is we'll actually persuade some people, and there will be people who don't like it. But I am fearful of churches becoming so seeker-sensitive we become believer-worthless. We need to convey all of the counsel of God, and yes, sometimes that will not be popular. But what's worse, someone getting offended that they heard a message on abortion that they didn't like, or that person having an abortion because we never preached on it. You said you had three things you share with pastors. Was that one, or is that's, that all three of them? That's actually one and two together. One and two together. We need to trust God to protect our ministries, and secondly, we need to believe that we need to be courageous enough to, to do this because none of our fears are worth the price of children dying. The third thing I would say, and this is important too, we can win on this issue. A lot of pastors think if I preach on abortion, I lose. No, it can be a win-win. Here's why. When you convey to your congregants that the Christian worldview has something intelligent to say on an issue like abortion, it builds trust in your pulpit ministry yep. that, hey, maybe the Christian worldview can speak holistically to all of life if it speaks intelligently on this issue. And I'm reminded of something that happened to me at the University of North Carolina Law School about a decade ago. I went there and gave a presentation on the pro-life issue to the law students at lunch. And we got about 200 law students that came to lunch at the secular university. I gave a case for the pro-life view. And when I got done, the first person to raise her hand was a female law instructor there. And I thought, oh boy, I'm going to get hit with it now. And she looked at me and she began with these words, I came here today expecting something the exact opposite of what I heard. I came here today expecting you to tell me why it was your religious belief that abortion is wrong. Instead, what I heard is someone who gave a very sound legal, philosophical, and scientific case for what you believe. She said, I've never heard anything like this. I'm shocked. And uh, I just want to thank you for conveying this. Now, she didn't fall on her knees, Mark, and confess Christ, but notice we put a pebble in her shoe at that point, as my colleague Greg Kogel says, something that's going to wear on her. And that's our job as pro-life Christians, give people something to think about. 
that's pretty good progress too. Well, final question for you. What would you say to Christian students that are in public schools and what God might have for them with this issue? Number one, I'd say to you, your job is not to get converts on the spot. Your job is to put that pebble in their shoe. Give them something to think about. Something you say to a friend today could could impact a decision uh, 30 years down the road. I remember 15 years ago getting a phone call at home from a, a girl in high school I used to witness to, and it never seemed to go anywhere, Mark. I would share the gospel with her, and it's like, oh... This is just hitting a brick wall. Now, full candor here, I had a crush on this girl, so I was trying to get her saved so I could justify (laughs) dating her, but it never worked. And, you know, after high school, I lost contact with her, and I, I often wondered, I wonder what happened to her. And one day I get this phone call out of the blue. I mean, it's been 28 years or so since I've talked to this girl. I get this phone call. Hey, Scott, this is Tammy. I just had to call you. I'm a Christian now. And a lot of what influenced me was things you told me back in high school that I never forgot. And I would say to your students, the things you say that are true today about God's word, don't think the Lord can't make that grow in fertile soil at the right time. You just do your job as a faithful ambassador conveying biblical truth and leave the results to God. It's not on you to close the deal right now. It's on you to say the truth and let God do the work of bringing regeneration in that person's life whenever he chooses to do it. I love that. The most helpful thing for me, I heard about just witnessing is from Bill Bright. He said, you know, the definition of successful witnessing is taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. That's it. Wait a minute, I can do that. (laughs) Yeah. I can do that. Uh, By the way, you've never saved anybody and neither have I. God's the one who is able to save. All I can do is be a faithful ambassador. And just practically speaking, in our final moments, what have you seen that like high school students can do in their high schools that can really move the needle on this issue? I have seen high school students give very persuasive defenses for the pro-life view in their classes. I've seen them invite pro-life presentations into their school Bible clubs and Christian clubs on campus and seen students change their minds because the Christian students took it upon themselves to say, we want our friends to hear the truth on the pro-life issue, and we're going to find a way to make that happen, whether we bring in a guest speaker or we convey it ourselves. I love it. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being here with us. How do as anybody watching, get more resources from you. They can go to prolifetraining.com, all one word, prolifetraining.com, and on the resource tabs up above, they can click on the Case for Life drop-down menu, and they can get a whole case for the pro-life view along with how you answer the common objections. It's all right there for free. And if you haven't bought or read any of Scott's books, you'd need to. Uh, He's a co-author of a great book called Stand for Life. Uh, and also an author of a book called Case for Life that's already out and also coming out in a fresh edition. A this second edition, November 14th. So got to buy both of those. Well, Scott, thank you again for being here with us. And Great friends, to be with you, Mark. Uh, thanks, and thanks for being here at our conference. We loved were, it. Had a ball. Our students loved it. The line was out the door to talk to you after, so I could tell you really hit a nerve with our students. Well, friends, join us next week. Uh, We're going to continue our series about standing for Christ and living for Christ. As we're going to stand for Christ on the rock of his word, we know that as leaders, we need to be people that are being fed by God's word. We're going to be joined by Rich Hung uh, from our California team, who is a man of the word and is actually a man of memorizing the word. And he's going to be sharing with us the incredible impact that being fed by God's word, even in the form of memorizing the word, can give us strength for our mission. 
and the ability to stand firm in a culture that's standing against us. In the meantime, help us spread the word about this show. Here's what you can do. Uh, you can uh, rate, review, uh, share it with a friend. And please, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you about what Scott shared with you today that was so helpful or any questions that you may have or any ways that we can help you do the things that Scott was challenging us to today. So send us a note at podcast at decisionpoint.org. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you.